Southeast Pennsylvania. We are Radio Catskill. Hello, 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 and welcome to the local edition. News and information to keep you connected in the Catskills in Northeast Pennsylvania. I'm your host for this Friday evening, Patricio Robayo. Hope you're doing well on this Friday evening. Start off the Labor Day weekend. Please stay safe out there. Don't forget we have the music sale that's coming up, our yard sale. That's starting tomorrow at 9 o'clock. We have vinyls, music equipment, everything you need. In fact, uh, Jason Dole will be joining me later on in the program to talk about the music sale. Also, in the second half of the show, we'll be talking to Dr. John Moore. He's a virologist from Will Cornell Medicine, talking about the latest cases of COVID-19. But first, it's Friday on the Local Edition, and every Friday we check in with the one and only Chris Rowley from the Shawangunk Journal. Uh, Chris, welcome to the program. Um, something we've always been talking about for a while, actually, uh, has been cannabis. Um, it's, it seems to be sort of a low, uh, not a low, but a slow turnout. And recently there was some news on the federal level of the uh, marijuana or cannabis uh, being changed from a scheduled uh, one to a scheduled three. Uh, what can you tell us about this? This is the first crack, major crack in the wall and the federal level towards removing uh, marijuana or cannabis from Schedule 1, where it's treated as if it was, you know, heroin uh, or, or methamphetamine right. um, and, and, and a highly dangerous drug uh, to Schedule 3, which would be a kind of a, a landing point where it would stick for a while. Hmm. But the what would be really important about this is that would um, it would change the, uh, the the tax opportunities at the state level. I don't know all the details here, and I think it may vary by state, which would be another layer of complexity. But uh, that that these tax uh, opportunities are not available right now for mm-hmm. the cannabis industry um, for the companies like Cureleaf and Cresco um, and others, uh, Etane, uh, that are you know growing into sizable entities but are restricted by two major things. One, they, 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 because of the federal illegalities, they, they can't access the banking system, uh, and therefore they're dealing with a lot of cash, which is dangerous. And secondly, and, and also they can't, the, the, the credit card companies won't allow credit card purchases for their product. And then the other thing is they, they, they can't take, take advantage of these tax opportunities, um, which, you know, would, would be a big help. They're having to pay their taxes, but they're having to pay their taxes in cash. It is kind of ludicrous, right? In this day and age. Um, so. Things like that will change, you know, just if they get moved to Schedule 3. However, uh, the DEA has to be brought around, and 
you, we have to understand that everybody at the DEA is going to be opposed to anything like this because once they lose the illegality of cannabis, then the, all they've got to concentrate on imposes fentanyl and methamphetamine and other drugs that are dangerous and therefore illegal. Um, but those don't have anything like the user base that cannabis has in the United States. So they would lose sort of the, the option of, I don't know, what, what, would they, what they do these days. I mean, you know, on the borders, uh, you know, I don't think the cartels bother to uh, smuggle cannabis uh, into the U.S. anymore. They grow it in America instead. So uh, I'm not, not sure, but there'll probably be, uh, you know, last-ditch efforts by the DEA to retain the illegality uh, sign of uh, cannabis at the federal level, and that will have to be overcome uh, probably by Congress. I, I don't, I don't know, you know exactly how that all works. But anyway, this this is big. It, it, it's the big move. It's the first real crack in that wall. So. Yeah, that would be a game changer for the cannabis industry. You know, just a medical marijuana, medical cannabis, if it's transported between state lines to a state that doesn't have medical marijuana or it's not legal in there, it's basically you're creating, you're, you're doing a federal crime. You're, you're, you're transporting product across state lines. Oh, all, all those rules could, would change, yeah. And, and of course, one of the big things would be our research, which right now is very difficult to do, um, you know, lead, leading a lot of kind of gray areas we don't really understand about cannabis um, because just doing medical research or, or scientific research is hardly possible. So if that happens, then, uh, you know, you know, and, of course, both sides, might might regret that, but <laughs> but um, you know it it would be it would make a, a huge difference uh, you know to, to, for that to be able to be done, and it is kind of silly, really. I mean, it it is a, a legacy of the drug war thing where cannabis was seen as the as 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 for some reason as, as highly dangerous when most people who have any experience of it know that it's not. Um, and in fact, we can we can say with with certitude that um, no one has ever died of an overdose of uh, THC or cannabis. That is, that just doesn't happen. What at the same time we should also note that somewhere between five and seven uh, American men in their fifties die every week from overdoses of alcohol. This, this, that's, a, that's an established fact. So, um, you know, it, it, it's really, it's an odd, it's one of these odd things. The legacy of, of a society's intense concern about heroin addiction and the fear that cannabis use would lead people to become heroin users and therefore addicts. Whereas now we understand that that, that hasn't been the case and that, um, the, 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 the past to uh, uh, heroin addiction is is comes is, is is multifaceted. It comes from lots of different places, um, and uh, you know, most recently, it, there was a huge boost to it from people taking painkillers, uh, the the oxycontins. It, 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 this is one of those issues that bedevils humanity everywhere you look. You know, political responses to to medical things uh, are never really 
how can we say it? They're, ne they're never really uh, optimal. <laughs> More reach to that word. And also, you know, we also should remember that the intensification of the war on drugs, which began with Richard Nixon, had a powerful political aspect to it that he later was kind of lost in the dust, which was it was designed uh, back in 1970-71 to take it to the, um, what we'll call in those days, the blacks and the hippies, uh, both identified by uh, the Nixon administration as their enemies. And the idea was to, you know, bust them, put them in jail if they could. And, uh, and you know, there was no real concern for what marijuana does or anything like that. Um, and there was no real concern about heroin addiction at all. It was a purely naked political move. Um, and that was admitted later by um, John Ehrlichman, who was, uh, Richard Nixon's uh, number three, uh, in, in or number two in his office. So you know, um, you know that polit those politics then turned into uh, a decades-long, you know, excuse to arrest people, and produced uh, hundreds of thousands, millions of uh, people being sent to prison, or not sent to prison, threatened with sent being sent to prison. And so, you know, living lives, you know, on the edge as a result. Um, and, uh, you know, a kind of a deep-seated uh, wound or aspect of the, of the culture wars, which was never really necessary. It's not really that much of a cultural thing. Yeah, yeah, so this is major. This is a big, big thing. Meanwhile, on a local level, we have chaos. <laughs> so, uh, and we hope that uh, Judge Bryant in uh, Kingston uh, can sort things out um, uh, with this lawsuit. He's got he's just got to hear it now. I believe they have a hearing uh, in the first week of September. I'll be it'll be next about this week, but next Friday, I believe there's going to be a hearing. But I don't know how much action will take place immediately. Uh, but what the four disabled vets want is you know a reexamination of the CAURD law or rules. Um, and I don't know how quick on their feet the officers cannabis management are. Um, hopefully they can, you know, achieve something pretty quick on that and open that up to, to veterans as well as to uh, uh, people who have been impacted by the justice system during the war on drugs um, or the war on drugs effect on cannabis. Anyway, until that happens, applications for uh, dispensaries and, and anything else um, are on hold. Meanwhile, in September, uh, applications are to be taken by the Office of Cannabis Management um, to for uh, production, for uh, production to the farmers and um, uh, processing facilities, all that, all that sort of side of things. They should be allowed to apply during September, and permits are. Supposedly, although this, it seems unimaginable, but it does seem that they are proposing this, that they will be uh, uh, giving out permits in October. Well, we'll see. So that's the story there. Are these this complicated? There's been anything else in New York State, right? Yeah, I mean, they see we have other states who have done this, and it seems like they were up and running in no time. 
uh, when it comes compared to like the way things are running in New York. They were up and running in no time. Yeah. And they just basically let the big companies in and let them do their thing. Uh, and New York was, was determined to try to create a, a socially equitable um, market and production situation uh, to allow little guys in to compete. Because in some states, like Illinois, they know in particular, um, the big guys, particularly Sobol and Cresco, um, basically run everything. Uh, they, they, they took over. And they have the scale to uh, undercut anybody uh, and, yeah, um, basically do a kind of standard oil <laughs> cannabis. Not that, not that they're, really, they're bad people or anything, but, you know, it's just the power of capital. Um, that, that's one aspect. But, you know, it goes state by state. I mean, it truly is. Um, the United States is, is showing the world how a variety of ways to, to deal with ending this uh, crazy prohibition Colorado still seems to be, you know, um, have done the best job. I mean, you've got local and you've got the big companies too. And uh, it's been legal there for quite a while and it's just become an established part of, of life. And um, despite all the fears and everything else that hasn't produced, uh, you know, a lot of, you know, maybe there's more people using cannabis, but hey, so what if, 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 if they're not harming themselves or anything? And uh, there has not been a giant increase in the number of car accidents or any of the other things that were imagined. Well, you know, thank you so much for bringing this up to light. You know, this is something that's um, it's been an ongoing situation. We talked about this in the past and how long this is all taking. So we were talking to Chris Rowley from the Schwankman Journal, letting us know what's happening in Ellenville and Ozer County. And this week we're talking about cannabis, giving us an update on where we are, not only nationally, but also locally. Chris, thank you so much for joining us on the program. We'll talk to you again next week, Friday. Again, thank you so much there for, for Chris. Uh, let's take a look what's happening. Um, I, we had a press release from the New York State Police that they're saying that they will increase patrols to combat drunk and impaired and reckless driving throughout this Labor Day weekend. The special enforcement period starts on Friday, September 1st and runs through Monday, September 4th. Labor Day weekend traditionally results in heavy traffic throughout the state. This increased flow of traffic also brings with it increase in accidents, serious injuries, fatalities, and police will be out in force to Im- remove impaired and reckless drivers from the highway. Also from the state police, they are investigating an accident that happened on Route 17 in town of Kushakton on August 31st, approximately around midnight. Uh, New York State Police from the Liberty Barracks respond to a fatal motor vehicle accident on State Route 17B in the town of Bethel. The preliminary investigation revealed that a 2014 Dodge Charger from the town of Bethel struck a motorized bike operated by a 17-year-old male from Coshecton. After striking the teen, the motorist left the scene. He was later arrested and arrested for leaving the scene of an accident that resulted in a death, which is a felony of a clear mass slaughter in the second degree. So we'll be right back. This is the local edition, and we'll be talking to John Moore. You are listening to the local edition, winner of two Excellence in Broadcasting Awards from the New York State Broadcasters Association. Radio Catskill. Listen local.
Welcome back to the local edition. News information to keep you connected in the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. According to the data from the CDC, there's been a notable 30% increase in hospitalizations within the past two weeks in New York State. This surge comes in the backdrop of the prevalent EG.5 variant, which has been identified as a relatively mild strain of the virus. Additionally, health authorities are currently closely monitoring a new variant labeled BA286, as announced by the New York State Department of Health. Governor Kathy Hochul has recently issued a strong advisory urging individuals across the region to adopt appropriate precautions in order to safeguard themselves and their communities. At the local level, the surge in cases has risen, as indicated by data from the New York State Department of Health. I had a chance to speak to recently Dr. John Moore, a virologist associated with Will Cornell Medicine, on the outlook of COVID this season. Based on the data from the CDC, hospitalizations have risen by 31% in the past two weeks in New York. The dominant variant, known as EG.5, is categorized as a mild strain of the virus. The new variant, BA.2.86, is now being monitored by the New York State Department of Health. Locally, there has been a surge in cases, according to the New York State Public Health Department. Sullivan County is currently experiencing a 45% positivity rate. I'm joined now with Dr. John Moore, a virologist with Real Cornell Medicine. Dr. Moore, should we be worried? I don't think there are grounds for major concern. I mean, yes, there are more cases in recent weeks than there were a couple of months ago. But a small percentage increase from a low baseline is very different from what we were seeing a couple of years ago, particularly when the Omicron virus first hit as the dominant variant. So here's an example, and I'm not saying these are true numbers. I'm just using this as an example. If we saw an increase in number of cases from 10 to 12, that would be a 20% increase. When we previously saw cases measured in the hundreds, then you can immediately see that a small percentage increase on a low baseline is not the same as what we used to be uh, dealing with. So, you know, yes, there are more infections around, but my discussions with physicians in New York City, where I work, is that hospitalizations for Younger, healthier people are extremely rare. The kinds of people who are being visiting the emergency room or being hospitalized are unvaccinated, and that is always going to be, unfortunately, the case for people who refuse to be vaccinated, and also people with pre-existing conditions that render them vulnerable to uh, any form of the virus that's circulating. So we're certainly not seeing anything like what we uh, went through at the the heights of the pandemic. Talking about vaccinations, who should be getting it this year? Is it everybody at this point? Well, we haven't seen yet official guidelines, but the and the new the new vaccine booster that will be approved probably in the next few weeks is a monovalent version based on a more current Omicron variant than the earlier vaccine 
design was tailored against. So to some extent, it's an upgrade um, and a more modern uh, design. So the people who most need um, an additional booster are the people who are most at risk of serious outcomes to infection. And that means immunocompromised people, people in poor health, people of, uh, who are elderly, particularly over 70, over 75. I mean, how you cut this depends on you know, very many various factors. But the most at-risk individuals are the ones who would most benefit from an additional booster. Protection against disease Severe disease is already strong on a population basis because we've had many people have had multiple vaccine doses and or infection experiences, all of which build up protection against serious disease. An additional booster in the near future would give a month or two's additional protection against mild infections, perhaps. And I say perhaps because there's not Enough, there's not really any data around at this stage. Some might uh, surface when FDA and CDC uh, reviews with the companies how those booster shots are performing in humans. There's not a lot of information around. So an additional booster might give additional protection against mild infections, but the, the booster effects always don't last more than a few months in this regard. I was looking at a recent Axios poll and it found that Americans are more concerned about other things, other health risks like fentanyl, obesity, guns, and COVID-19 is really ranked at the bottom of concerns. Uh, in your findings, in your, in your practice, do you find that also that folks are less worried about this virus than previous years? Yes, I think that's true for members of the public. I receive very few inquiries from social contacts, friends, members of the public about COVID. Certainly far, far less than we were, people like me were receiving uh, during the heights of the pandemic. There is less fear around now because fewer people are dying and those who are dying are often unvaccinated and I'm afraid that's just going to be with us because they've made very poor choices. So yeah, there isn't a fear factor. It's not on the public radar screen. I, it's bizarre, but the people who most inquire about what's going on at the moment are uh, journalists. I've had several inquiries this week and I think what's going on is that one news story triggers another news story because editors have this sort of FOMO, fear of missing out. If our rival newspaper has a story, we need to have a story too. And it sort of snowballs, but I don't think it reflects public concern about what we're presently seeing. There's probably a bit too much tweeting by some people who should remain more silent than they are. But I think it's, it's being driven... Uh, it's a, an August news story is the way I see it. I don't hear grounds for concern from members of the public. Where do you see masks playing a part of our lives this fall and winter? Well, you know, one always has to be aware that there could be additional developments that change the picture. But I spent the last two days at a vaccine-related conference in a major university. And of the... 50 or so people who were at the meeting, I only saw two of them who were wearing masks. So among professionals, 
who are obviously pretty well aware of where we are, there, isn't, there wasn't any significant mask wearing. Now, you know, if you're in, again, if you're in a vulnerable health group, if you have, and by now everyone really should know their own health status and their own risks. I mean, we've had three years of this. If you have a serious condition that puts you at risk of serious disease, then you should be taking every precaution you can. And that would include mask wearing. But it's become less common in the past year. And I think it will remain uh, uncommon unless something happens that changes the current state of the pandemic. Dr. Moore, before we go, is there anything else I have not touched on that you want folks to know about? Well, you see media reports of additional variants, and variant evolution is inevitable. That's just going to happen. And it's good that monitoring will detect the presence of additional variants. Additional variants aren't necessarily more dangerous variants, not to any significant extent. So, you know, one only would freak out if you see information emerging from solid sources that any new variant is actually more dangerous, particularly from the perspective of causing severe disease. And that's not what we're seeing at the moment. So the fact that a new variant is being seen is not really of major importance to the public. What actually matters is if there is solid evidence that a new variant is truly more dangerous, and that's not what's been happening in recent weeks. We're talking to Dr. John Moore, virologist for Wheel Cornell Medicine, talking about the new variants and the outlook for COVID this upcoming fall and winter. For Radio Casco, I'm Patricio Rubio. Thank you so much to Dr. John Moore for that. And I have in the studio now a very special guest, the one and only Jason Dole. Hey there. Hey, how you doing? We have, I just, just saw you outside. You are going through the records for the upcoming yard yes. sale. So you can tell us about what kind of findings, what kind of great records have you been finding? We've been finding all kinds of great records. Um, there's also lots of great equipment and stuff. So, so there's lots of records that are available for a decent price, you know, um, and then there's some records that are a little bit more rare and collectible and they're still available at a decent price. They just cost a bit more, you know, right. so depending on what you look for, if you're looking for, you know, to bulk up your record collection and jump right in, you can do that very affordably. If you're looking to find some of those missing bits and pieces, you might find them here. Right. And then we've got lots of great equipment, stereo equipment. There's a, there's a Fisher quad seventies quadraphonic, uh, amplifier. Uh, that powers on, uh, but it, it doesn't fully work. But just that alone, it's like, wow, that's a that's a beautiful wow. piece of machinery. It's something people are going to be looking at. And we just have so much stuff. We got to sell stuff. I have to say, if you've got VHS tapes and you need to play them at some point, you're thinking of trying to get a VCR. Yeah, we've got a ton of VCRs. We're going to be selling most of them for like five dollars each. Come buy three of them. Yeah, take them home. See which one works. You know, because uh, after this weekend, I think they're going to have to go. You know, yeah. so we're we need we need to make some room. We're still going to have our big sale in November. You know, right. so there's some really, really nice things that we're holding up to. Like we got a donation of a Macintosh amplifier, which wow. is unbelievable. Yeah, uh, everybody wants one of those, and uh, that's something we'll definitely be holding on to for the big sale. But there's just so much stuff. We're going to be selling lots of stuff. We sold stuff at the beginning of summer. We're selling stuff now. Music sales kind of become a year-round thing, yeah. but we still have the big sale coming up in November too. But uh, tomorrow. That's 9 a.m. 9 a.m. Right 9 here to in 3 Liberty. 3 p.m. Right here in our studios off Route 52, you know, and just come on out, cash or Venmo. 
Um, and what what else? Uh, oh, Hip Hop 50? Yes, We're celebrating yes. Hip Hop 50 years tomorrow. We've got the NPR special, one of Summer's hosted. got DJ Cool Herc and a lot of other folks you talked to. That's uh, starting at 8 o'clock after Liberation Station. Then at 9, Old School Session starts an hour early, and they're doing, like, the history of hip hop. They're doing 50 years of hip hop, going from the early inspirational stuff like James yeah. Brown, writing through the, the disco beats to the break beats, the classic hip hop that Chuck's got, going until 2 a.m. So six hours celebrating uh, 50th anniversary hip hop tomorrow night starting at 8 uh, right here at Radio Catskill. It's a full weekend. You have the music sales <laughs> happening on Saturday. The Saturday alone is a, is a busy weekend. There's a lot going on yeah. Hey, and I'm doing my series, Meet Me at the Harvest yes, Fest. Yes. I'm going to be at the Harvest Fest on Sunday. I'm going to see who I meet, you know. And right, I'll right. bring my microphone, and we'll we'll do a report like Monday or Tuesday on the local edition. Right, that's great. And so the Harvest Festival has become sort of a yearly tradition now nowadays here in, in Sullivan Catskills. I said Monday or Tuesday, but just to remind you, Monday yes, we're doing a labor, uh, labor special on the local edition, checking out Rural Migrant Ministries, Hudson Valley Labor Federation. Um, so be listening to local edition on Monday for Labor Day. We're going to remember the reason behind the season. Yeah. You got to talk to uh, uh, Workforce Development. And we also yes, talk Center to the Hudson Workforce Valley, Development. Yeah. Right. Hudson Valley Labor uh, Federation. Check in, see how the unions are doing, um, talking about labor in our region. Right. That's awesome stuff. So it's all busy, busy, busy Saturday here and a busy programming for everyone here on Monday. So you have been listening to the local edition. Like I said, we'll be back on Monday to do this all over again. Everyone have a safe and great weekend out there. Stay safe. Enjoy the weekend. Have a good night, Lucy. Night, Lucy. It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. Thank you.